0: Business here,
1: man. We've got a mission. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the
2: Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. The world's only rock and roll talk show is making its debut tonight on Chicago Public Radio. And we've got a great
1: show for you. We've got John Cale in the studio performing with his band, and we're going to interview him going way back to his early days in the Velvet Underground and up to his phenomenal new solo album, Black Acetate. We've got record reviews of the number one debut by Madonna, The number one debut by System of a Down. A couple of the biggest records at the end of the year last few weeks.
2: We're also going to pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox later on in the show. But first, as always, we've got some music news.
0: Well, here's 3,000. That ought to get it on. Thanks a lot, man. I love your new song.
2: All right, Neil Young had the Paola blues. A lot of artists have had the Paola blues, and a lot of uh, listeners, whether you know it or, or not, have had the Paola blues for about the last 50 years because this is a $300 million a year system that has been in vogue since the 50s. Now, the record companies have been paying off the radio stations to play records in various forms since Alan Freed's era in the 50s and at least he played good records Alan Freed played good (laughs) records
1: (laughs) but I thought this has been outlawed Greg
2: how could this be it was outlawed in the 50s and 60s and it was outlawed again in the early 80s and now it's being outlawed again a payola investigation led by New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer. I love that name, Spitzer. Great name, great name. He's gotten two big fish to fess up in the last uh, few months. First, Sony BMG, and now Warner Music Group, two of the biggest record companies in the world. That would be the largest record company in the world, Sony, and the third largest, yes, Warner's. Yes, they both have admitted... Yes, indeed. We have been paying off radio (laughs) stations. Uh, They both paid fines and admitted that they illegally provided radio stations with financial benefits to gain airplay and boost chart position of their songs. For artists like R.E.M., Green Day, Madonna, some of the biggest artists in the world Mm. have been uh, supposedly benefiting from this system. Warner paid a $5 million fine. Sony BMG, a $10 million fine, which supposedly is going to be used to finance music education programs in the schools. Well, that's in New York all very State. well
1: and good. But now, this is not your grandfather's payola, right? No. This is no longer the big wad of cash and the bag of cocaine.
2: Yes. How, uh, how does it changed? Well, it, it's really strange, Jim, how they were able to sort of revive payola after it was deemed dead for the second time in the early 80s. And now, what happens is the radio conglomerate signs a consulting deal with an independent promoter. so In other words, a middleman. That's what they call a The hitman, yeah. Yeah. And and what he does is the promoter agrees to pay $125,000 or more annually to an individual radio station, but not in the form of cash or cocaine, as in the old ways. But now he'll slip them, oh, here's some sports tickets for you. Here's some concert tickets for you. Here's Here's some some trips to Hawaii for your listeners. Here's some T-shirts. And, oh, by the way, I hear your office needs a fax machine. In exchange, they're not getting... Airplay of a specific song. What they're getting is access. Why is access so important? What what
1: is access?
2: It means I get my phone call returned from the program director. The Mm. program director potentially could get hundreds of calls a day from people saying, play my record, play my record. The program director doesn't return any of those calls. He's got no time, right? He's too busy spending the money he's getting from the record companies. But because
1: you gave me all this good stuff, including the fax machine and the trip to Hawaii, I will return your call, Mr. Hitman. But I'm not saying I'm definitely playing your record. Spitzer uh, mentioned by name, although he hasn't gone after the radio chains, Clear Channel Communications, Infinity Broadcasting. Those are two of the largest radio
2: chains across the country. They own dozens of stations in every city what does it mean to the listener? What it means to the listener is that potentially the playing field has been leveled, and I say use that word potentially very cautiously here because the idea being that now not just the big guys are going to have access to Radio Airplay, but potentially the program director is supposed to look at every record that he gets and say, okay, I'm going to play this song based on its merit. It's a good song. It deserves to be played. Yeah. Right now, it's well, it's a sort of a good song, but it yeah. also has this $125,000 attached to it, so I'll play that one as opposed to the song that doesn't have that kind of money attached to it. It's a form of consumer fraud. That's basically what Spitzer is saying in these investigations. You are defrauding the listener of these they're just supposedly gonna, they're public airwaves. just going
1: to figure out another way to change the name of Paola. That's all. It'll just come back in a different way. Sad but true. This is not even the first scandal of the year for Sony Music. It's interesting. The world's largest record company, it's, uh, it's subject to several class action lawsuits. Already six of them, including two in Texas and California... Filed on behalf of angry consumers, these lawsuits are going to pile up and continue to mount because, a couple of weeks ago, technology bloggers discovered that in an effort to curb music piracy, or sharing, if you want, (laughs) it's a name I prefer, Sony had embedded 5 million copies of new CDs by 52 of its (laughs) artists with this copy protection software that it bought in Britain called XCP, and it was supposed to limit your ability to copy a disc on your computer. Now, my understanding of copyright law, you and I have interviewed dozens of copyright lawyers. You have 12 of them in a room. You get 12 different answers. Right. But I bought a new uh, CD. You know, Some of the artists involved here are Neil Diamond, Trey Anastasio, Celine Dion, Ricky Martin. I don't know why I'd buy any of those, much less want to <laughs> copy one. But nevertheless... If Lots I, of people I, out there do. I paid my cash money for a Ricky Martin CD. I want to make a copy of it on my computer, one for the car, one for home. That's legal, as I understand copyright law. However, this software would not only prohibit me from doing that; it was a virus or spyware that would burrow like a worm (laughs) into my hard drive and completely, potentially, screw up my computer. So, I mean, imagine that. You know, you're 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 spending money for a Sony CD that you take home, and it blows up your computer. I mean, it's like Mission Impossible. The CD will self-destruct.
2: Sony BMG has huge amounts of egg on its face It's basically admitting we screwed up we did something very bad
1: well ten million dollars in the summer to
2: settle spitzer's payola investigation six and a half
1: million dollars this spyware thing is costing them because they had to pull out five million cds out of the store refund people who were angry enough to uh, ask for uh, returns and they have to manufacture all those cds again
2: We have one message for the record industry today, and that's basically get your head on straight. You are alienating the consumers. You need these people to buy your CDs. Help the consumer listen to music instead of alienating them. All right. We've got some more news. All right, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has struck again. They are about to induct their latest batch of rock and roll superstars, and they claim that the newest superstars to enter the hallowed halls of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is in Cleveland, by the way. There's a big museum in Cleveland, even though the headquarters yeah, is New York speak. City. And the
1: inductions are in March at the Waldorf Astoria
2: Hotel in New York. They Co- don't. Nobody actually wants to go to Cleveland. Correct. So imagine this motley crew, and I'm not referring to the band Motley Crew, but this motley crew of bands and musicians on stage at once in the uh, induction ceremonies in March in New York City. Black Sabbath, the Sex Pistols, Leonard Skinnerd, Blondie, and Miles Davis, who uh, I don't think probably he's won't be it. there. Yeah, he yeah. he not. will not be there. Basically, the uh, criterion for an induction is that you have had to have put out your first record at least... 25 years ago in order to be eligible for induction. Who votes on this uh, Hall of Fame, Jim? Can you fill us in on this mysterious (laughs) (laughs) process of uh, who votes on this and how these people actually get inducted into the Hall of Fame?
1: Basically a bunch of old white male rock critics who are friends with Jan Wenner, the publisher and founder of Rolling Stone who exerts an undue amount of influence. I have two huge problems, as you well know, Mr. (laughs) Kai, with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Number one, the idea that you're going to enshrine like a larks tongue in aspect. You know, some piece of rock and roll in the pantheon. I mean, rock and roll is about blowing things up. It's not about having a hall of fame erected to you. That's one problem. The bigger problem is is honoring a very narrow slice right. of rock and roll. It, it tends to be the baby boom acts from the 60s and it ignores genres. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious 5 were eligible for induction this year. They were among the uh, nominees. They didn't get inducted. Without Grandmaster Flesh, there would be no hip-hop. Right. Black Sabbath has been eligible since 1999 and has been snubbed by the voters to the point where Ozzy Osbourne said, look, this nomination is meaningless. This is 99. This is five years ago. Ozzy said, this nomination is meaningless. It's not voted on by the fans. It's only voted on by the supposed elite of the industry and the media, and they've never bought an album or a concert ticket in their lives.
2: Wow, that's that, That's like two coherent sentences in a row. From Ozzy. From Ozzy uh, that's yeah, amazing. Sharon actually Sharon wrote, wrote that. Yeah. I'm
1: sure. Craftwork has been eligible for several years without craft work there would be no electronic dance music no progressive rock band has ever gotten in no genesis no yes any act that that started a genre with the exception this year it's interesting to see sabbath finally getting in leonard skinner obviously a cornerstone band in southern rock it's cool to see them in the sex pistols you know hey the Ramones got in. Although uh, they only the made pistols. one record. You, st- you think only the Sex one...
2: Pistols should be in?
1: Yeah, just for the cultural impact. I agree. But, but the only thing that would be right about the Sex Pistols showing up at the Waldorf Astoria is if they got on stage and dropped Trow. <laughs> Because I mean, you know what I mean, and this was a band that, that was all about thumbing its nose at the establishment.
2: I think the idea of uh, Ozzy Osbourne and Johnny Rotten on stage together—what they could pull off—that oh, would that'd I be mean, great. They could subvert they could this whole process here. Bite they could... the head
1: off a dove and then
2: uh, <laughs> and then curse in public. Uh, Blondie doesn't belong in that company had a bunch of great singles but I don't think they're a Hall of Fame band by no. any stretch and you know Miles Davis a, a genius jazz musician the crossover with rock is a little bit more problematic I think uh, he he was borrowing a lot from rock in his late 60s early 70s period the Bitches Brew album and things like that but as a rock innovator I'm not sure Miles Davis belongs you vote see I got fired from Rolling Stone after 8
1: months so I don't get to vote anymore apparently my uh-huh. knowledge of rock history is not deemed worthy But I'll, you... Tell, you,
2: I'll tell you who I've been voting for who e- have you every for? year for the last 5 years not only the Black Sabbath and scared, yeah. who have finally made it this year, but uh, the Stooges, who I think invent, oh, the, oh, talk yeah, about yeah. inventors of another genre. Yeah. A lot of people think of the Stooges as the first punk band before the word was even invented. Yeah. In the late 60s, they were making records that are still incredibly influential. I think they belong in there ahead of a band like Blondie, for example. Yeah,
1: for sure. All right, well, we'll make this pledge to our listeners. That will be the only time this year that we'll mention the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, unless, of course, John Rotten and uh, and Ozzy do uh, drop <laughs> trow. Uh, the only thing we hate more in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is the Grammys. We'll only make fun of them once too.
2: Yeah, they're coming up too. Can't wait. All right, we got a little more news, and then we're going to get
1: to John Cale performing for us, and the new albums by Madonna and System of a Down. <laughs> All right, there you have what I think is probably the second coolest rock and roll single of all time. After Louie Louie, the 1958 instrumental Rumble by one Fred Lincoln, or Link Ray Jr. It's sad, Link Ray is dead. Born 1929, North Carolina, he was part Shawnee Indian. All he ever really did was rumble. You know, he had a long, long career, recorded many other albums, All of which tried to duplicate the success and the beauty of Rumble. He was recording that tune in the studio. It was uh, the producer's daughter who suggested the name Rumble because she thought it it, it sounded like West Side Story to her.
2: A knife fight's about to break out.
1: Yeah, exactly. Link's big innovation was Fuzz Tone, partly. He had taken a screwdriver and put it through the cone of his speaker to get this kind of distorted sound on the guitar. To me, though, what really makes Rumble great is the use of the whammy bar, which is that that metal piece that protrudes from the bridge of a guitar that a good guitarist can often uh, pick and manipulate that bar at the same time, and it brings the entire mix in and out of tune the whole time. So this sounded like you were on drugs, or drunk, (laughs) or, or just got hit in the head. That's what sounds so great about Rumble.
2: Well, it's an amazing song, Jim, because consider when it came out in the late 50s, 58. records were supposed to sound a little pristine. I mean, a record company guy or a DJ would listen to this record and think it was defective, yes. for the way it sounded. <laughs>
1: Well, and it actually got banned by many radio stations. It made it to number 16 on the pop charts, but was actually banned by many radio stations because A, the title, and B, they thought that the sound of the music itself was going to glorify juvenile delinquency. (laughs) That's an actual quote from the 50s. And you know
2: what the beauty of that is? They were right. They were right. (laughs)
1: People like Pete Townsend wrote the liner notes to a 1974 album. Uh, Founder of The Who said uh, of Link, He is the king. If it hadn't been for Link, Ray, and Rumble, I would have never picked up a guitar people have probably heard rumble in a lot of movie soundtracks in the last couple of years, most notably Pulp Fiction and also a lot of crappy movies like uh, Independence Day. Died at the age of 76 at home November 5. was buried November 18th in uh, Christian Haven, a suburb of Copenhagen. Link, we'll miss you, buddy. (laughs)
3: Deconstructing Putting it back together with a rubber band. The Legendary failures of the silver screen. Now they making that software they end up in. Will they do it? Doing a thing. Doing it. Doing a thing. The thing you doing down when you're dead.
1: All right, we're listening to a little bit of Things by John Kale. John Cale covering the song by Warren Zevon, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. Uh, that's from two albums ago already, the Locust record. Cale has put out, uh, since then, Hobo Sapiens and the new disc Black Acetate. The man almost needs no introduction. Co-founder of the legendary Velvet Underground, along with Lou Reed, they came together in the Andy Warhol scene, of the Factory Years, has produced the debut albums by Patti Smith by Iggy Pop, by Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, and, of course, a phenomenal solo artist in his own right. John Cale is on tour right now
2: with a four-piece band, and he and the group are in the studio with us. John, has a new album out, Black Acetate, which is the uh, 503rd album of his <laughs> career, I believe.
1: It's a good one, John. Thank you, guys. And and it seems to be the cliche of reviewers this time through America. Uh, you know, John Cale on a late career role, after Hobo Sapiens and, uh, and Locus and... Uh,
2: but, I mean, I, I don't believe there has ever been a bad John Cale album. Well, that's the thing about the, the colors on Black Acetate and also Hobo Sapiens. You were experimenting with some new stuff that I don't think you'd really kind of touched on in your yeah. career. You've been all yeah. over the place. I mean, started out in the avant-garde and classical scenes, went over into the rock spectrum. You've done just about everything. Now you're experimenting with, in, with loops and samples and electronic elements and... Those kind of textures. Well, that's that's
4: kind of a safe place to start. But really, it, it, what it got interesting was you know, things like Hush, where you didn't have a bass. You know, we went and played with MPC. It was a tough piece of equipment to deal with. It's and what, totally what is an MPC, yeah, John? Explain that to our yeah. listeners. <laughs> it's a it's a rhythm machine, and it has a compression ratio in it that is ferocious. It kind of dictates. What well, you can do, I mean, it, it, if you're gonna be a funky, you, you you can sway from side to side, but you get that NPC and it really makes your head move backwards and forwards. It's when you hear a, a car driving by playing hip-hop and all you hear yeah. is a thump. <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't allow you to have very many other instruments. You don't need very many other instruments. I mean, it's you know, it's it, its its own thing, it's yeah. great. Pharrell doesn't don't drop it like it's hot, there was
1: nothing there very much. Forella of the Neptunes, who's uh, kind of been a hero yeah. on this current phase of no, your well, But now you have been a noise monster your entire career. I mean, what you were doing early on with Lamont Young or the Velvets, where you, you were the equivalent of the car blasting people's eardrums of it. And, but, and at age 63, you still love the noise. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I don't know. I mean, where are you going to have your fun? you got to have it somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it's
4: put a band together and go on the road. and Make a lot of noise. Yeah. There's also the erotic element, too.
2: That I'm glad you brought that up. Man, the erotic element is so important in music. The sensuality that's there in black acetate, that's something that you were going for, I take it.
4: You know, it came out of sitting down and working out the grooves first. I write songs in the studio, with the studio, on the studio, not in my room. I don't sit around and, and strum and here's a guitar. Then Snoop Patent and drop it and it just sort of said, hey, you gotta be a little bit more brutal about your thinking about rhythm.
1: Drop it like it's hot. Drop it like it's hot. How did you Drop come across like the Snoop hot. album? I have a friend
4: who works at Universal mm-hmm. who called me up one day and said he just came out of an A&R meeting. And everybody's sitting around the table listening to the, the single before Drop It, mm-hmm. scratching their heads and saying, Is that a spray can? When I heard that, I suddenly perked up my ears because that's not just making a record, that's telling right. you something about the milieu and everything else. Yeah. And it went on in, in Drop It. I don't know whether there were a hundred other tracks that they pulled out of Drop It, but right. the fact that they ended up with what they were you know, was
2: inspiring. I, th- I think the production on that music, it's, it's avant-garde music. I yeah, mean, you're going, it's top exactly. 40 music. There you go. And you know, the lyrics are very blunt, maybe. The verses are very blunt, and you understand why there's a hook here. But meanwhile, the backdrops for these records are astonishing yeah. in the way that they use sound and color... See what I want to hear is John Cale producing Snoop. Ah, Now that would be.
1: I I want to. I think it'll
2: be the other way around. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I like (laughs) that. You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. We'll be back with more from John Cale and his band live in our studio. Welcome back to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRogatis. We're talking with John Kale live in the studio and his band. We're talking with John not only about his crucial role in co-founding the Velvet Underground with Lou Reed, Sterling Morrison, and uh, Maureen Tucker in the mid-'60s, but his later collaborations with some of the most notable names in music. Ryan Eno, who's perhaps best known as the producer of U2, was also an incredibly influential U.K. band called Roxy Music, also in that band was a guitar player named Phil Manzanera. Kale has worked with all of these people throughout his illustrious solo career. You famously collaborated with Brian Eno on Wrong Way Up, and then uh, you
1: and Eno had a falling out for a while. <laughs> the cover of the album had daggers on it, because but then uh, are now uh, occasionally working together again and friendly. How? Closely related to that was his oblique strategies and, and the, his theories of the happy accident, just being open to stuff. Uh,
4: I mean, it was all part of it. I mean, I yeah. think we both agreed on the M.O. Mm. I mean, uh, that, that mistakes are really important. And, and, mm-hmm. the, the, and I think we both were impatient enough with the studio that the system that we used, we were still in analog. The value of Logic Pro Tools is that you can change your mind within you know, 30 minutes and redirect the whole song. That's the value of it, is like, you know, I don't like being in the studio. There's sort of closets with no, you know, no, mm-hmm. I like going out, outdoors. So it gives you a sense of goal, you know, yeah. when you have that, because if, once you get fast at it, and what what I was saying to you about the Snoop thing, the gap between October and January, we finished it up. When we got back in January, we were really
2: putting the pressure on it. In your knowledge of, of this, uh, of an interest in this music leads me to wonder you as a producer, as a guy who sort of set the template for a whole generation of music by producing the debut albums of the Stooges and Patti Smith and Jonathan Richmond and Modern Lovers, and now your interest in hip-hop leads me to believe, I mean, do you ever have the notion of going back in the studio and saying, geez, what if we work in some hybrid areas with some of these newer artists that you're admiring, you know, Pharrell Williams and Snoop Dogg, people like that? Uh, Yeah,
4: I mean, I'd, I'd love to spend an afternoon with Dre. But it you know the hybrid
2: is the answer there's always a new hybrid around the corner you're able to intellectualize it now, but was that kind of thought in your mind when you were producing those records which became timeless no. back then? No that was really about the personalities i mean if you
4: the minute you met Iggy, the minute you met Patty, that was it you knew that there was there was really a vision there, and it was just a case of. Well, with U- Iggy, right? you, you know, you got five days to finish recording and mix an album. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get it on. How
0: would
1: how would Fear or Guts have, have sounded? You know, those great records from your your Island years have sounded different if you had Pro Tools at that point. I mean, it seemed to me that you were working fast and dirty, and those are those are. Raucous rock albums.
4: Yeah, but I had Manzanera and and, uh, and Brian to help.
1: Yeah, I mean that's
4: it. it was still a case of uh, these are the changes, but you be, you come up with the guitar part. Mm-hmm. Know, I don't care what key the song is in. This is yeah. the guitar part, <laughs> and I like that.
2: John, you are always going to be followed around with wherever you go, as long as you live, and then when you die, you will still have John Cale, founder of the Velvet Underground. How does that legacy hold up for you? I mean, I I know there's been a lot of ups and downs, some acrimony there. I was in your apartment in New York when you and Lou were exchanging faxes (laughs) in The famous fax war, yeah. and, uh, and, And not liking each other so much. Obviously, it was a nice opportunity to play again with Sterling Morrison before he died. But how do you feel about that legacy being attached to your name? I mean, you can't be anything but proud of it. I mean, I don't think we did anything that was really
4: awful. If we inspired a lot of people, that's, that's all you can hope for, you know.
1: Mm. But your career has never been about dwelling in the past. No. Y- your beef with Lou was that you wanted to move forward and write new songs and to, and to improvise and to not be stuck in one place. You could make imitation John Cale music for the rest of your life, and people would pay to come see you. <laughs> Yeah, you could just rewrite fear. I'd become a really nasty old man if I did. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to speaking of nasty. I wanted to ask you my favorite quote in What's Welsh for Zen, your uh, autobiography with Victor Bokris, is uh, it says uh, you're in college, still in Wales, prior to coming to America, and uh, you got voted by your peers the most hateful student (laughs) in the school. (laughs) You've always been so nice (laughs) to me, (laughs) to Greg. I I
2: know those are the days. Yeah, we want to know what you did to earn that, John. Uh, Yeah, I'd I'd like to know that.
1: Are you still angry? Yeah. And it comes comes out on some tracks on this album.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a good creative. I'm glad I've got a creative outlet for it. I mean,
2: it keeps you from getting on the roof
1: of the. Wouldn't want to be in politics, for instance.
2: (laughs) You know, I think there are great moments of beauty on, on Black Acetate as well, John. You're here in the studio with your band, and I think playing a song like Set Me Free would be a great example of that. you.
3: And it's powdering up the air, powdering up the air, making it hard to breathe. Gonna set it free. It's free or fly Together again and again. River castanets. You're trying hard to forget. It sets your teeth on edge when she tries to set you free. And you walk in the rain up to your ankles in water. Think daughter and what she'll mean to you if she should set you free.
2: A song like that is just—it's a—it seems like there's a there's a an element of beauty. It's always been in your work, but I've noticed it especially on these last two records. Amidst all this noise that you're working with and these drones, there's this incredible beauty that you're pulling out of it too. It's uh, a relief actually to go into
4: into sort of I don't know maybe nostalgia or whatever. The the funny thing is that that set me free though. It's only about childhood and mm-hmm. get me out of my childhood.
2: I don't really want to get out of my chair. I mean, I, those, <laughs> those, those are the happy days of my life. Well, and I think your career sort of been an example of holding on not only to that innocence, but the, the, the sense of freedom, the possibility that you can do anything. And I think uh, it, there's a tendency to think, well, I'm playing by these rules and these are the guidelines. And it seems like every time somebody thinks they've got you figured out, you make an album that completely confounds those expectations. That seems to be what it's all about in a lot of ways.
4: I, I don't think about them b- per se. What's really important is to do another album that's different from this one. So mm-hmm. the next one, it'll always be like, okay, throw something at me. Let's see where we're going today. And, and if, it's, if it's scary, then f- you know, I'm on the right track.
1: Uh, John, if, you, if we had to put you completely on the spot and say, of all of the songs you've written, what, wh- is there one that you're proudest of? I'm, I'm proud of Gravel Drive. Mm. It achieved more than I thought it would.
3: Tired and helpless In midnight's year Leave me something Take me home.
1: John, why is Gravel Drive dedicated to your daughter, Eden? Oh, it's my
4: way of telling her that it wasn't explained sufficiently to her when she was small that Dad goes away because that's his job. Hmm. He goes on tour and he comes back. And then, you know, one day Dad didn't come back. So this is my
1: way of saying Dad's back. Yeah, Uh, He never left. There's a, a, a great picture of her uh, in your book where she's playing with the Warhol balloons at the yeah. Pittsburgh Museum. Yeah, I mean, it had, had to be, you know, they're, they're, I'm sure there were downsides, but it also had to be some, some great sides to having Dad to have had as many experiences and know as many people as you do. Yeah, she's dealt with it pretty well.
2: Did she give you a response on the song? Did you Have you talked to her about yeah, it? Yeah, we,
1: you know,
4: it's a little few
2: tears, you know. And mm-hmm. It's interesting that music can be maybe a way of saying some things that uh, you couldn't say yeah. in, a, in a conversation, That's right? very important. Thank you, John. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks, John.
3: You've got the money, I've got the time. You want your freedom, make your freedom mine. Because I've got the style it takes.
2: You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune, and he's Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times.
1: You're listening to a little bit of Madonna's single, Hung Up from Confessions on a Dance Floor. Number one debut in in the American Pop Charts the week of its release. In Europe, an unprecedented first for Madonna, yet another... Uh, From the woman who brought us the sex book, where she's number one actually in every format that there is, which (laughs) now, in addition to, you know, pop, uh, album, single, uh, includes download, uh, mobile phone, ringtone. I have no idea why the Europeans are embracing this because this is Madonna's I want to go Kylie Minogue move. And of course, Kylie Minogue was doing her I want to be Madonna move. I, I don't know why the Europeans are eating this up, but I guess Americans are too. Madonna's last record, 2003's American Life, was one of the nadirs in a career that's had quite a few them a Korea that's also had some brilliant moments before the Madonna hate mail starts to flood in again let me say that you know Madonna at her best 92's erotica. Could push buttons, could be incredibly sexy, could take that extremely limited and always has been voice. Uh, At least now it's getting better as she ages. I prefer the old Madonna as opposed to the young helium chirp Madonna. She's always been rock's great chameleon like appropriator of other styles. She has done in the dance world what David Bowie famously did in the rock world. I'm going to steal a little of this, a little of that. I'm going to go deep in the underground, borrow stuff. This time, she's not doing that. There's no I'm going to go techno move. There's no I'm going to go s move. There's, it, there's nothing cutting edge about Confessions on a Dance Floor. It's Madonna by numbers. It's what U2 has done on the last two albums where they said, we're just going like, to do everything we can that's a cliche to sound like U2. Or it's what the Rolling Stones have done for the last 20 years where they're imitating themselves. It's, it's a simulacrum of a Madonna album. She tried to make a, a, a fun dance album. And the fun is kind of forced, you know, when she sings in this song, I Love New York, because every other place makes her feel like a dork. You know, I mean, it's like, God. I mean, Madonna, we're used to you not being the sharpest tool in the shed. but I hope she's
2: being tongue-in-cheek when she sang that line, because it was one of those cringe-inducing songs and certainly lines of the year. I don't like
0: cities.
1: Kind of like this is her um, back to basics dance move. I'm gonna use every dance cliche I ever have, and I think she's thinking, well, this is this is my way to reclaim my past. But in fact, I think she's coming off like share with believe.
2: Well, you know that's not necessarily a bad thing because I like "Believe." I thought that was a, probably the most tolerable Cher song yeah, I ever yeah, but, heard. But,
1: but but I wish there was a single that good on this album, and I ain't hearing it.
2: I happen to love dance music, and especially the vintage era that she's hearkening to—70s disco, late 70s disco period—that Giorgio Moroder, Donna Summer, Euro disco sound. I love that sound. She grew up on that. That's what she was doing throughout most of the 80s. The stuff that really rings true for me, Madonna, you prefer sort of the later era Madonna stuff. I do. I love the early Madonna Immaculate Collection stuff. Oh, the, how can you the listen to that The singles collected on she
1: that. Just, oh, it's, she couldn't sing. It you was, know what? It was
2: so annoying. You could put any voice on top of those grooves and on top of those melodies. I never listened to Madonna for the content. I listened to for the grooves and for the melodies, and, and she was a master of that in the 80s. Great songs to hear on the dance floor. She's back to that mode again. On this record And I think it works really well When she sticks with that very simple formula The stuff that you seem to hate Is the stuff that I seem to love about it (laughs) But where I think we agree Is that when she starts to get heavy handed With the lyrics And starts singing about her faith And about her questioning life Was it all worth it When this record works The first half of it is back to basics And that's what this song is all about here It's the Euro disco sound And she's got it on Future Love bit of madonna future love there from the new record confessions on a dance floor aptly titled record we are going to rate this record jim and i we do this every week the patented sound opinions rating scale buy it burn it trash it Buy it as in being worth cash money to buy.
1: Yes. Uh, burn it as in, uh, you know, tape it or burn a CD of it. Borrow it from a friend. Sample it at the listening booth. It might be worth your time. Might not. Trash it, obviously. Self-explanatory. Greg, uh, I think this is right on the cusp of a trash it or a burn it record. But since it doesn't cost anything for you to burn it, you know, burn it, you might have a decent EP of two or three
2: songs here. She has three or four songs on it that could make the next Immaculate Collection. So we're, saying, we're saying the
1: same thing. You're saying it would be a good EP. It's so burn uh, it. I said the same Burn it record. Burn it record. All right.
0: Breathing each other's lives,
3: holding this in mind, that if we
0: fall, we all fall,
2: and we fall. That is Attack from System of a Down, their second album of 2005, Hypnotize, following up the uh, Mesmerize album, which was released just six months ago. These guys are nuts. They released two albums in one year. After a four-year layoff, though, that they hadn't been heard from. Yeah, they're a prolific band, but they take their time about being prolific. (laughs) (laughs) They went in the studio with uh, Rick Rubin, who has uh, been in the news a lot lately. He uh, produced that Neil Diamond comeback record. He was part of that whole Johnny Cash comeback in the 90s, recording a bunch of music with him. Earlier on, Rick Rubin was recording groups like the Beastie Boys and Slayer. Now he's sort of become the in-house guy for System of a Down, one of the very best hard rock slash metal bands of the last decade.
1: Debuted at number one with the first album of the pair, the second one on its way to debuting at number one as well. This may be a kind of obscure cult band for a lot of people because it is a very strange band, part art rock, progressive rock, in the Frank Zappa freaky, twisted Mm -hmm. tradition, part grinding heavy metal in a kind of new school tradition. Very obscure stuff with an interesting political history.
2: Yeah, the political history is that these uh, four members of this band, although they all live in Los Angeles right now, are all of Armenian descent, and they are vagabonds. Their family were vagabonds, scattered after the uh, the, the Armenian uh, Genocide atrocity of uh, 1915 through 1923 where the Armenian population was systematically wiped out by the Turks and then scattered throughout Europe and the Middle East. And These guys put their money where their mouth is. They're they're serious about political activism. They have a lot of issues with not only the uh, war in Iraq. They have relatives still living there in Iraq. They have a lot of issues with the American, what they see as a propaganda multimedia machine sort of helping to propagate this war. Wow, that's a weird thing to be at number one. How are they doing it? What they've managed to do is to combine the melodicism of 60s pop groups like the Beatles with this brutal, headbanging, thrashing music that references everything from the darkest metal music to Armenian folk songs. They will jumpstart and cut to these different musical reference points six or seven times in the course of a three and a half minute pop song. Stopping at a dime. Group has it in them to write an entire classic album. They did it. In, in 2001 with Toxicity, uh, mm-hmm. one of the best hard rock albums released in this decade. This, their uh, hypnotized, paired with mesmerized, their third and fourth proper albums, make one great record. Here's a, uh, a track called Holy Mountains, and you can hear in the harmonies of Darren Malachian and Serge Tonkin, they call themselves the black metal Simon and Garfunkel. They've got this <laughs> weird... You, know, you, you almost feel like sometimes you're in a Christian Orthodox church, yeah. you know, back in Armenia in the old days. And they're hitting these harmonies that are referencing that type of music. At the same time, you've got this furious metal assault going on. And this song has got some beauty in it and also some uh, incredible passion to it. It references the uh, Armenian genocide in which 1.5 million Armenians were massacred by the Ottoman Turks between 1915 and 1923. They reference this river Aras, which uh, runs from Turkey to the Caspian Sea, in this particular song. The song, in its chorus, is Can You Hear the Holy Mountains? Liar, killer, demon, back to the river Aras. Someone's mouth said, paint them all red. System of Adon at its very best with Holy Mountains. ¶¶
1: All right, that's System of a Down, Holy Mountains from the Hypnotize album, part two of their uh, double album release in 2005, Mesmerize, Hypnotize. There is some filler on here. There are some down points, but this is such an amazing sonic accomplishment, this
2: album. I have to say it's worth people's time. It's probably the best hard rock record I've heard this year. There's only 39 minutes of music on this record. There feels like there's twice m- as much because of the complexity of the record, and there are some really weak tracks on here. I think I, I would have I would have gotten rid of "Vicinity of Obscenity." She's like heroin that still leaves, you know, eight or nine pretty good tracks, and that's yeah. a pretty good batting so average. So you can buy it and cut out the duff parts. What you should do is, uh, between Mesmerize and Hypnotize, you have got uh, probably a great 60 minutes worth of music. That's more m- great music than almost any other band has released in 2005. So I have brought you over to a buy it. Buy it, I'm, burn it, trash or buy it? I'm on the cusp of this? burn it, buy it, but I think if I had oh, to make in. a choice, I'd, 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 the, on, cash should, it. the cash should have to come down. All right. You'd all have to right, go buy it. Right.
3: I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched! Just away, the island
0: sea, my own. you remember? We were shipwrecked together.
1: Each week on Sound Opinions, we take a turn popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox, playing a track
2: without which we could not live. This week, it is Mr. Cott's turn. Well, thank you, Mr. DeRogatis. This week, I'm going to go back to a song that was most famous in the early 80s, and you perhaps recognize this.
0: (laughs) ¶¶
2: band called soft Cell, a little electro pop duo from england called soft Cell, had a huge huge hit with this song tainted love it was on the charts for a record 106 weeks in the united states in uh, in the early 80s s&m sells Yes, it was an and m song and uh, it was kind of identified with the gay culture, suggesting that uh, this was uh, a song that was written by Soft Cell, when in fact it was a cover. A cover version of a song that was done originally in 1964 by an artist named Gloria Jones. Who is Gloria Jones? One of the l- great lost soul singers in rock history had a number of uh, hit records under the uh, name of the Blossoms. She recorded backing vocals on tracks like uh, Rockin' Robin, and Bobby Day song, Chain Gang by Sam Cooke. She recorded this song, Tainted Love. It wasn't really a, that big of a hit and actually got discovered in England about five years later by the mod scene. Big fans of what they call Northern Soul in England. In other words, taking music from hit factories like Motown and Stax and playing them in the clubs in northern England. This whole movement of northern soul sort of revived Gloria Jones in the public eye. She went on to marry Mark Bolin of T-Rex. Wow. And was in the latter stages of T-Rex. And in fact... I did not know that. ...was at the wheel... When that infamous car accident occurred that killed Mark Bolan, wow! Uh, so Mark Bolan, the founding member of T. Rex, a legend in English rock circles, Gloria Jones was his wife. You are schooling me,
1: Mr. Cot, Professor Cott Did she die in the crash?
2: She did not die in the crash. She survived the crash and went on to record some more music. But uh, her greatest achievement is still this song, and I still think it's the definitive version. Well, let's hear it. It's Gloria Jones with the original version of "Tainted Love" on Sound Opinions. That was this week's Desert Island Jukebox pick, Gloria Jones' original version of Tainted Love from 1964 on Sound Opinions. Next week, my favorite show of the whole Sound Opinions calendar, Rock Critics Love Lists. Our top ten records of 2005.
1: Thanks primarily to Tori Southside Malatia, our executive producer. <laughs> Todd Bachman, our managing producer and director. Matt Spiegel, we brought him with us, our producer. He's back. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, our associate producers. Eric Rudd has been our engineer. You're going to be able to listen to us online at soundopinions.com. We're going to have some footnotes and a lot of uh, extra stuff that couldn't cram into the show. We'll go on the web. So you can visit us there during the week. Until then, tune in and turn it up.